Hello, hello. Actually, the mic is, uh, is unnecessary, except that we want posterity to uh, know all about this. Good evening. My name is Kirkpatrick Sale. I am the treasurer of Penn. Uh, and that is why someone thought uh, that I might be an appropriate person to uh, host this evening's meeting. I want to welcome you all to our wonderful new Penn offices uh, and to uh, a brand new Penn evening for us. We've never done anything like this before. And I know that it is taking you away from the annual soap opera awards on Channel 9 tonight, uh, and I know that is a sacrifice on your part, but I do want to uh, uh, thank you for that sacrifice. Uh, as treasurer of this organization, I bring uh, absolutely no qualifications financial whatsoever. Uh, what, what I am treasurer for is that I care that we have enough money to function, rather, and it's a matter of heart rather than, than of mind. Uh, uh, it is, however, uh, the, the question of uh, financial matters does intrude upon a writer's life. As, for example, this morning at 8.30, I received a phone call from my tax advisor who had just been down to the IRS where they audited me because the IRS is auditing all uh, writers whose expenses are greater than their income. And that, that's a lot of writers. The IRS assumes that you're making a standard salary of uh, $15,000, $25,000 a year, uh, and that it never fluctuates, that writers uh, just get the salary. It, it comes, uh, comes out of the gods or the publishers. And so when they discovered on my uh, form for two years ago that uh, I had indeed spent a lot, but I hadn't made very much, uh, they, they were very suspicious. They have audited 200 uh, writers in the New York area, and I am one of them. Uh, I'm trying to convince them that, in fact, uh, uh, writers do not make a, uh, a basic salary and that uh, one's income can go up and down. Uh, they don't seem to understand that in the bureaucratic world where the object, of course, of life is merely to make a, a constant salary. Uh, but it is because I care uh, about uh, the IRS and these things do intrude upon one's life that, uh, that I uh, consider this evening's uh, event be important for all of us. Uh, before I introduce the speaker, though, I feel it's necessary to leave you all with one word of wisdom. It comes from James Thurber, and it is a fable for our time, which is called The Fairly Intelligent Fly, about a fly who was flying around and saw a spider's web. He saw that the spider's web was absolutely bare, <coughs> nothing on it, because the spider naturally, whenever a fly lands, eats the, the, the fly so that no other newcoming fly will be suspicious. But this fairly intelligent fly was suspicious because there was nobody else there. 
And he said to the spider, I never land anywhere where there are no other flies. And he went off. He went, uh, he saw a place where there was a whole band of flies. A bee coming by said, uh, don't be a fool, that's fly paper, they're all caught. The fairly intelligent flies said, no, 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 they're dancing. And he went down and he was caught and he died. The moral of the story is there is no safety in numbers or anything else. <laughs> and it is upon that note, and I wish you'd remember this moral uh, throughout the evening, uh, that, I, that I want to uh, introduce to you uh, a financial consultant at Merrill Lynch who has in his career been a specialist in uh, advising the publishing world, which God knows needs advising on this subject. Uh, a, uh, a Harvard graduate, uh, a, uh, an expert in the matters we're to hear about tonight, Tim Stone. Thank you and good evening. Uh, I assume that everybody got these two pieces of paper when they walked in. If anyone doesn't have them, you can certainly uh, come up here. Does anyone not have the, either of these pieces? Okay. Uh, <laughs> one, I know you got a lot of things. You can, one is notes to the seminar, and the other is uh, just says investment strategy for literati, which is the title of this lecture. Okay, you don't have them. Okay, as I guess rumor has it, my name is Tim Stone, and uh, I'm a financial consultant at Merrill Lynch. Uh, to some extent, that is a glorified term for stockbroker. Uh, it's actually a new generation of investment advisors. And uh, I'm going to speak to you this evening uh, about uh, investment strategy in a very general sense, and uh, to some extent, we're going to break this down into a few areas here. Uh, first, uh, uh, to begin, uh, a financial consultant, I'll go into a little bit more later on, somebody who advises you in finance uh, is not just a specialist in one type of investment, not a stock jockey or someone that knows uh, just about bonds or one type of thing. It's someone that uh, knows about all the different areas of finance and can bring them all together for you. Uh, so first of all, uh, everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Okay. Uh, I'm going to try to get through this in about 45 minutes or so. What I really want to do is have you all think about some questions, because I don't want to, to bore you too much with details. I'd like you all to think, and I'd really like to open it up for discussion as quickly as I can. So um, first of all, just to give you a feel for, for what we're going to be speaking about, uh, who should advise you? Uh, America's best buy for a nickel is a telephone call to the right man, Elka Chase. Um, I'm going to speak about. Uh, the difference between accountants, stockbrokers, lawyers, candlestick makers, and the whole bit, and how you should use who and when. Uh, after that, uh, the likelihood of making money on investments, 
uh, he who wishes to be rich in a day will be hanged in a year, uh, comment by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, I'll show you it basically how if you're conservative and you look at the averages for a number of different types of investments, not just for stocks but also bonds and also real estate, that if you, you look at the averages over the past few years, the past five years or so, or even ten years, uh, almost everything, everything is beaten inflation. So if you're conservative, you really can make money. It's not a uh, big myth. Uh, after that, um, we'll speak about uh, how to distinguish forever between investments. Uh, and my comment here, how I don't know of anything so remorseless on the face of the earth and 7% interest, uh, common in the 19th century. Uh, I'm going to try to cure a disease that many of us have called GAIDS. I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, I don't know if any of you know you have it, but I'm sure many of you do. Uh, it's um, uh, graph reading uh, deficiency syndrome. And uh, it's a dangerous thing to have. It's very simple to cure. I'm going to have a few charts. Don't be afraid. They're really easy, just as long as you just relax a little. They make plenty of sense. Uh, then we'll speak about uh, the opulence of retirement plans. Money is of, uh, of a prolific and generating nature. Money can beget money, and its offspring can beget more, uh, comment by Benjamin Franklin. Uh, it's just amazing how much you can save if you just begin to plan to save in, in retirements. After that, we'll speak briefly about insurance and estate planning. And as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, I hate quotations. Tell me what you know. And by this time, I figured you would be getting tired of, of all these quotations. Uh, finally, a little bit on, uh, on taxes, how to gain from a loss, uh, and how to, uh, how to really make some of the uh, uh, taxes we have at least begin to work for your advantage. Uh, finally, people. Um, I won't mention that quotation there. If you want to read it, you can. Uh, I'm going to show a few different financial scenarios, uh, hopefully some of which are fairly typical, and give you a feel uh, for what one can do uh, for different uh, financial needs. And um, then after that, we'll open it up for questions and answers. I don't know if you can read that last one, but the, for questions and answers, the uh, quote by George Bernard Shaw is, if all economists were laid end to end, they would not reach a conclusion. Okay, uh, first, in terms of who should advise you, very, very simply, uh, the first person that's important for you, no matter really who you are or, or, or what you have, is an accountant. To state it simply, an accountant should do your taxes. He should prepare your taxes for you. Uh, and the one area that he can help you with is this. An accountant, if he's good, first of all, he should have a good understanding of your profession. Uh, and second of all, he should be able to show you when you need certain types of investments. He's not going to do more than that. He can't tell you what specific uh, stock to buy or what bond to buy or what type of real estate. What he should be able to tell you is, uh, really, gee, you're in a high tax bracket. You've got to be thinking maybe of this type of investment or this. So different investment sectors. Uh, we happen to be lucky enough to have an accountant who is a literary accountant. He specializes in handling writers, publishing houses, literary agents, people in the publishing world. In our audience tonight, his name is Bruce Savitt. And um, he'd be glad to, uh, he'll be around after cocktails. If anybody has any questions, he's really a, uh, a terrific advisor. Uh, and then, of course, after that, for finance and investments, you need someone who's going to advise you uh, in terms of uh, the different financial markets. And uh, you need uh, a stockbroker or a financial consultant, someone in, in investments. Uh, a to, to be more specific about a financial consultant, as I've, I've written up here, it's really the, the, 
new improved version or the new generation of stockbrokers, a few of the firms have begun to train in this direction. It's not really the same as the old stockbroker. It's somebody who has a real uh, working knowledge of many different financial markets um, in, in, in addition to estate planning and retirement planning, things like that, and really is able to listen to you. And from listening to you, really put together a general financial package that is uniquely designed for you. Uh, and uh, that is, to a large extent, the, uh, the wave of the future. Uh, the most important thing about who should advise you is to, obviously, first of all, you need to find someone you can trust. And um, you need to feel comfortable with them, feel that they really can, uh, can listen to you uh, and give you some advice that, that's personalized to you. So there has to be some chemistry going on between you and your stockbroker or your financial consultant and you and your accountant. Uh, so uh, to go on to the uh, next area, and that'll, those roles of the accountant and the stockbroker I'll bring up increasingly later on. Uh, okay, the likelihood of making money in the financial markets. This is, a f this is not a complete chart, but just if you look at the first, the top two lines here, uh, if we look at the last five years, what would you have done if you had been roughly an average investor uh, in money markets as opposed to if you were you just hit the, uh, been an average investor in, in bonds as opposed to stocks, as opposed to real estate. And what we're comparing all this to is inflation. Inflation over the last five years has averaged each year about 5.3%. And every single one of these investment areas has, has very well outdone inflation. So if you invest fairly conservatively, the average investor right here has beat inflation over the last five years on an annualized basis by, by more than twice. Real estate, 12%. Stocks, 14%. Taxable bonds, 15%. Money markets, 11%. So if you're conservative, you shouldn't be afraid about being able to beat inflation, conserve your capital, and, and, and grow uh, some of your money. I also want to just point out one other thing. Though the graph is incomplete, you can see that a little bit of a trend here. Um, inf real estate has, is and always will be a fairly good investment. But if you can see this, that over the last few years, over the last 10, 5, 1 years, it's begun to decrease a little bit. Uh, 10 years ago, or over the last 10 years, the annual, annualized rate was, has been 14.7. But if you look at the last 5 years, as opposed to just the last 10, the annualized average for each year is 12%. And if you look at this year, it's 10%. So it's, it certainly uh, should always be part of your investment area, but it has begun to decrease a little bit. And it, isn't necess it, it shouldn't be seen as... Uh, the end-all, be-all of, of the investment world. Uh, it's a very popular thing in New York to, uh, uh, to have and to think about. Uh, okay, let's, let's move on from here. Okay, um, this is sort of an ambitious title, uh, not even sort of, it's a very ambitious title, but I just want to give you all a, a, a f some type of framework to distinguish between different investments. Um, what I've done is I, I've shown you the degree of safety, of a particular investment, the amount of reward you can expect, the degree of liquidity, and the tax effect. And one thing that I've defined is when I say liquidity, I have sort of a, um, an improved definition of liquidity. As far as I'm concerned, liquidity means your ability to liquidate your investment within a day or so and without a loss. Okay, so 
that's my definition of liquidity, the ability to liquidate quickly and without a loss. Uh, so if we look at some of these things here, the uh, first thing on the investment scale is fixed income or bonds, where you're literally purchasing a piece of debt, fairly conservative, uh, and in exchange for loaning someone money, you're getting interest. Okay, treasuries, clearly the most safest investment around, backed by the U.S. government. Uh, there's virtually no risk unless the government down the, goes down the tubes. You're really going to have not too much trouble getting your principal back. Uh, as a result of that high degree of safety, the, uh, the reward is fairly low uh, compared to other investments. Um, now here's the, the point about liquidity. Uh, a bond will mature, okay. So if you buy a 10-year bond, you'll, you're going to get your principal back in 10 years. And in this case, since it's a treasury, that, that obligation is guaranteed. You're guaranteed to get your principal back. Uh, if you want to get out before then, this is where the question of liquidity comes in. It's uncertain whether you're going to be able to do that at a gain, at a loss, or at breaking even. And this comment about liquidity is true for any type of a bond here, from, for CDs, corporate bonds, municipal bonds, anything that's a bond. And the point is that uh, the, um, it, it's funny. Bonds are, are seen as always illiquid. Everyone says, gee, bonds are illiquid, stocks are liquid. Well, it's really not that true. A bond is just as liquid as a stock is. If you want to get out of the thing and sell it, you can within a day or two. The point is that there isn't a guarantee that you're going to be able to get out at a gain or at a break even until it matures. So uh, there is a, there's an uncertainty about liquidity before the bond matures. Um, and that's a, a, a question of interest rates and where, where rates move. Um, I don't want to get too much into this, but very simply, uh, if you buy a bond, you pay, let's say, $1,000 for your bond, and, and interest rates move, quote, up, then the value of your bond before it matures will decline. But on maturity, it will be exactly what you paid for it. If, the, if interest rates do the reverse, if they move down, then the value of your bond will increase before maturity, and you might have a chance to get out at some type of a gain. That's, that's basically the bond game right there. That's, that's what happens. If you only care about maturity and getting your principal back at maturity with the interest that you've locked in, then this idea of getting out before it matures doesn't really concern you. Okay, so those are, those are fixed incomes in a nutshell. You're, you're putting in principal, you're getting a fixed rate of return uh, amount, amount of interest, uh, and you're either going to wait, have it mature, your principal and your interest, or maybe before maturity, sell it for a loss or a gain. And that's true for, as I said, all these things. Um, after treasuries, just skipping, skipping to number three here, CD, it's very safe, not as safe as a treasury as a result of that increase of aggressiveness. Uh, you'll get a little bit of a higher yield from a treasury than a CD. It's backed by the banks or by the FDIC as opposed to the U.S. Treasury. It's a little bit, a little bit less safe than a, than a treasury, though. It's still, as I say, fairly safe. Uh, corporate bonds, uh, if you're buying bonds that are of, of quality, that are AA or lesser quality, Again, you're getting a little bit more aggressive than a CD, so your yield's going to be a little bit higher. Um, and this, this goes on like this. Uh, convertibles, it's a, this, the same type of idea in terms of yield. If you're buying something that's, that's pretty uh, aggressive uh, or, or uh, speculative, you're going to have a higher yield. The way this works is, it, it, this sounds really uh, boring. We, we talk in this whole lingo. I want to try to keep that to a, to a dull roar, but we talk about triple B bonds and double A and triple A and all this stuff. What does all this mean? Very simply, triple A is of the highest quality. 
triple C is, is a relatively low quality, and, and that's the gratiation in between. So if you're buying a, a bond that is a corporate bond, number four, with a grade of triple B, that's considered relatively aggressive. It doesn't have the same degree of safety as something with a triple A rating, because that's, uh, that might, a triple A bond might be insured or government-backed, something like that. So uh, corporate bonds will vary, and your yield will vary according to how safe or, or, or speculative they are. Uh, the one thing that I haven't uh, mentioned, uh, so I wanted to cover fixed income first, is money markets, and I think most everyone here is familiar with them. You get a fairly low yield. Uh, your security is, your principles is, is very secure. You're able to get out on a daily basis. So, you know, for your money that you're going to use on a day-to-day -day basis or a month-to-month -month basis, uh, clearly this is where to have some of your savings, certainly not in, not in your passbook savings. Okay, the last one here, uh, municipals. Um, municipal bonds, again, fixed income. You're buying... Uh, uh, a, a bond that's going to give you income that's tax-free. It's really, it's a fantastic idea. It's really funny. A lot of people either don't know about bonds or think they're boring as hell. And uh, the advantage about a, a municipal bond, a tax-free bond, is you're getting income that you're not paying any tax on at all. So what that means is this. We have this term called taxable equivalent yield. Okay, that means this. If you get a corporate bond and you're in the highest tax bracket, let's just say for hypothetical reasons you're in the 50% bracket, though as we know in New York City you can be in a higher bracket than 50% because of state uh, and city taxes. You lock in a yield of 20%. Great. You have a corporate bond, you're locking 20% yield. Wonderful. If you ever could do that in this day and age. Well, if you lock in a yield of 20% you're in the 50% bracket, half of that money goes to Uncle Sam. Okay. So that means your real yield in a corporate bond is, tis, is, is 10%. And if you looked at a municipal and you locked in a municipal that was 10%, your equivalent taxable yield, i.e. as if you were locking in a complete taxable rate, since this bond is 10% and is tax-free, is the same as a corporate bond that's 20% and is taxable. So when we talk about a taxable equivalent yield, we take a municipal bond yield if we're getting, let's say, 9 or 9.5% 9 right now, and we double it. So a 9% yield, if you're in the maximum tax bracket, is the same as if you bought a taxable corporate bond at 18%. So, um, and when you think about that, it's, it's pretty darn attractive. Right now you can lock in, if you're in a high tax bracket, you can lock in the equivalent of 19.5% of or 20% on your money. And that, that's... That's basically pretty impossible to do if you try to invest in another type of a financial market. You can't do it in the, in the corporate bond market very easily. You can fairly safely lock, lock in a very high yield in the tax-free markets if you're in a 40% bracket or higher. Okay, stocks. Um, basically two ways to go. Uh, mutual funds, uh, you're getting diversity in a managed portfolio. Um, of course, there's some risk. The markets move up and down. Um, as we've seen, though, if we look at the annualized yields over time, uh, stocks as well as other assets have made money. They haven't lost money over the last five years or the last ten years on an annualized basis. So though you're going to see some fluctuation, you've really got to look at the averages. Um, and even in the last 50 years, stocks have been up and have, have beaten inflation. Um, individual stocks, of course, there's, there's a little bit more risk in, in that because you have the, the risk of selection. You're going to be doing the... the the buying and selling yourself. Um, the 
the basic difference here, which I think some of you know, is that mutual funds have a, for the, for the most part, a load or are sales large right up front in the beginning. And stocks have a little bit less relative uh, commission or load. So uh, with the funds, uh, that's one of the things you've got to remember is you're paying some charge, some, uh, you know, between 2 and 8% um, to buy the fund itself and to buy that quality of management with stocks or not. just depends on your, uh, your interests, your feelings, and whether you want to take the time to, to be managing individual issues. One last point, mutual funds. Okay? There's, a, there's a lot of interest in them for retirement plans and just for in your regular accounts. How do you judge a mutual fund? Well, what you basically do is you look at its, tra at its track record. If a fund has been in business for six months, it's pretty hard to evaluate whether it's good or bad, what it's really done. But if a fund has been in business for five years or more, you can take that fund and you can ask the fund group for the average annualized yield each year. You ask for the average yield each year. And what do you do? You compare it to the market, to the stock market. So all you have to do is either yourself or get someone else to compare it to how the, the regular market's done. Has it underperformed the market in the last five years, or has it overperformed it? If the market was up 9% uh, in 1980, was this fund uh, up 15% or was it down 10%? And uh, so there you go. That's, you just take a, uh, a relative look at, at, at the, the stock market, for example, the S&P 500, and you compare it to how this particular fund that you're looking at has performed, and you have a real feel to some extent as to how this is going to do in the future, or at least some feeling for, uh, for uh, how conservative it is, how aggressive it is, and what will happen to it according to what happens to the, to the markets. Um, okay, and uh, finally, one other area of, of, of finance investments, sh tax shelters and real estate. Um, the first one here are uh, uh, private placement limited partnerships. It's, again, one of our pieces of jargon, private placement limited partnerships. What does this mean? It's basically, as I've, as I've ex mentioned down here, uh, you are, if you're in a private placement, you're looking for a few things. Number one, you're looking for some amount of, of write-offs so you can set off against your tax bill, and you're looking for professional management, someone who is going to take the time to manage real estate for you and a few others and give you some profits, because you might not have the time to do that, or maybe you own other real estate, but you don't have the time to own more and directly manage it. So what you have here is a private placement where you're pooling money with other people. Uh, each of you is buying a unit of this investment, uh, and you're going to be getting three basic things from any piece of real estate, inclu including a private placement partnership. You're going to be getting um, write-offs. You're going to be getting write-offs or deductions to some extent, number one. Number two, you're going to be getting income. Hopefully, some of it is going to be tax-free or tax-sheltered. And finally, you're going to be getting capital gains. So income, write-offs, capital gains, those are the three components to analyze any type of a of a real estate investment, including uh, private placement shelters. Uh, the difference between private placement shelters and public shelters is, is fairly simple. The private deals demand a lot more money. Maybe you'll be putting up between fifty dollars and $100,000 over a period of time. The public deals demand a lot less. You put it up once, and you might put up anywhere between uh, Ten and a hundred thousand dollars, depending on how much you want to put up. You have the option. So the private deals, you're really obligated to put in uh, a specific amount of money, and usually it's at least fifty thousand dollars staged in over four years or so. The public's 
um, not quite as much of an a obligation, and it's right up front. Um, the public deals, as a result, they give you a little less of a deduction uh, or a loss. They're really designed to give you income and uh, to give you uh, capital gains uh, and some amount of tax-free income. And finally, real estate direct. Uh, of course, many of us want, need, or, or, or do own our own uh, houses or apartments, especially in New York. Uh, and to some extent, it certainly makes sense to own your own property. Um, in addition, it makes sense, I think, in these times to own property and maybe even to rent some because you can get some rental income for yourself. I think that's great. Uh, in addition to owning property yourself, you might also find that you don't have the time to, uh, to manage it and to attend to it. So, again, that's where the relationship between the actual real estate shelters and the direct real estate comes in. You might own your own apartment and live in it. You might even uh, rent out another apartment to somebody else, but you might also need uh, someone to manage your real estate for you uh, in addition because you might not have the time to, to do it, to think about maintenance, to think about when to buy and when to sell, things like that. Uh, okay, let's move on. Okay, uh, I just want to mention a few things of special interest if you are a corporate treasurer or if you have a business, small or large. Um, and before I do that, I'm just going to quickly mention another uh, opportunity in, uh, in real estate, and that is to get second mortgage loans for yourself. A great way to uh, increase the value of something you own is to take out a loan and to rehabilitate, rebuild, add on. Uh, you might want to do that, and then if you make an addition, you could rent it out and get some more rental income for yourself. Uh, or if you have bought something that's fairly shabby, and it's not always a bad idea because it, the most important thing in buying real estate is buying it. It's, it's the buying price that's the most important, not the selling price. So if you buy something that's shabby, you can get a, more, a second mortgage loan, get some cash, and uh, refurbish or renovate the real estate and perhaps at that time sell it for a capital gain or, or live in it. So that's the advantage of a, of a second mortgage loan on, on real estate. Okay, to go on here. Um, there aren't probably too many of you here who are treasurers or corporations or, uh, uh, or sole proprietorships, but if some of you are in the audience, uh, there are a few things that are somewhat new that are really terrific. I just want to mention them very briefly. Uh, one of them is there, if you have a large amount of cash in your treasury, there are tax-free investments that are weekly. You have to buy them in $100,000 units, so you have to have some money in your treasury to do it. Uh, but uh, I... I know a lot of companies that love to do this, and I handle plenty that do it. Um, seven days, instead of getting a money market rate, you're getting a rate that is, that is, that is tax-free. In the maximum tax bracket, I don't really want to explain why, but if you're in the highest corporate tax bracket, that means that a preferred stock yield is almost completely tax-free to you, 93% tax-free. Okay, terrific. Uh, the last thing that, that, is, that is unusual in the markets for an institutional investor, for a corporate investor, money market prefers, I know that some of you are aware of these, um, they are very short-term, fairly safe investments that give a yield that, again, is 93% tax-free if your corporation is in the maximum tax bracket. It's a new idea. It's a fantastic idea if you're paying a lot of taxes and you need to keep your money safe and liquid. Um, a few other things for, for corporations to consider. Again, uh, 
the line at the bottom. Again, loans on real estate, second mortgage loans, if your, your business owns real estate at all, you can get some, some cash from that and begin to uh, maybe build the real estate into more valuable assets. Uh, equipment loans, working capital uh, loans, uh, non-securities credit loans, which are loans for uh, securities that before you could not get loans on. Okay, I just want to read through that quickly. Okay, this is one of the most dramatic things you're going to see this evening. <laughs> Numbers, wow, terrific. I know that that doesn't look that exciting, and for many years, whenever I saw numbers, I, I, my eyes kind of glazed over and I, I, I began to feel dizzy. So I sympathize with you if this doesn't look that interesting. But I wanted to show you how, how terrific this is. Um, <laughs> this shows you what is going to happen if you consistently put money into a retirement plan. Um, an IRA or a KEO, uh, some type of a pension. Even if you're putting in uh, less than $2,000, and especially if you're putting in uh, $2,000 or more. Okay, what's, what's happening here? Well, this shows you that for an IRA, okay, the, all the IRA stuff is on the left-hand side here. If you put in $2,000 diligently uh, for, let's say, 20 years, and you get a, a rate of return of 10%, at least 10%, if you do that for 20 years, with $2,000, you're going to have $114,000 uh, in your IRA. And... Uh, if you do it for 25 years, you're going to have a little under $200,000 sitting there. And if you do it finally for 35 years, you're going to have over half a million dollars sitting in an IRA. That's, that's fantastic. And the reason that it hasn't been talked about a lot, and a lot of people don't know about it and realize, is that IRAs, of course, aren't that old. We haven't had them for that many years. So you don't meet people or many people that have an IRA with a half a million dollars in it. But it's going to happen. And if you do it right, it will happen to you. Uh, in terms of kios, which are on the, on the right-hand side of the page, I just want to fix the focus here. Um, here, if you put in $30,000 a year, and obviously not all of you can do that, but if you were able to put in $30,000 a year, and I know for a fact that some of you uh, have income high enough so that you can and want to put in 30000 bucks a year, if you're doing that, then, again, you're going to, over in the next 15, 20, 30 years, you're going to hear about people with, <laughs> maybe they won't tell you, with terrific amounts of money in their pension plans. Right here, if, if, you, put in, if you can put in $30,000 for 15 years in a retirement plan, and that is growing at, at 10%, you're going to have a little under a million dollars. And then <laughs> if we go over for, for 25 years, you're going to have a little under $3 million in your retirement plan. Um, I want to say one thing very briefly about, about Kios, and that is, okay, you might want a Kio and you might not want to put in um, $30,000. Well, obviously, what you can do, or, or perhaps not obviously, is put in less than $30,000 into a Kio plan in addition to your IRA. Uh, and this gives us just a, a rough idea of some of the limitations. If you have, a, if you have or you want a Kio, first of all, you're a sole proprietor, a writer, uh, a literary agent, um, you could be incorporated or unincorporated. You're putting in $2,000 a year into your IRA already, but you're making enough money so that you really would like to put in more. Well, first I want to mention what these retirement plans, what's, what's the retirement plan game? How does it really work? What you're doing, I, some of you, of course, find this very obvious, and some of you don't know it at all. So um, I realize that sometimes I'll be going over things that are, are, are very straightforward for some of you. Uh, 
You're putting your money into a retirement plan, and you're not paying any taxes on it at that time. So it's tax deferred. Uh, if you're earning $50,000 a year and you put in uh, $5,000 into a Keo, you're putting that $5,000 in without paying any taxes on it at all. The idea is that you're going to put it in there without paying taxes on it. You might retire in 25 or 30 years, and then if your bracket declines, you're going to be able to pay taxes on that money, but at a lower tax bracket. That's number one. Number two, in addition, just the fact that you're deferring taxation, even if your bracket stays the same from now to affinity, the fact that you're not paying taxes on the money when you put it in means that that money has much more of a chance to grow. Uh, you're going to be taking, taking money away from it, not immediately, but maybe 20 years later. So there's, it'll accumulate more easily. So that's the retirement game right there. So if you're, uh, you might want to put in something like uh, more than $2,000 into a retirement plan. Uh, so the question is, well, well, how can you do it? What are the limitations? Um, if you want to, you don't have to, you can put in up to, uh, if you're unincorporated, up to 20% or $30,000 of your income. So if you're making $100,000 a year, you can put in 20% of $100,000 and not pay taxes on it until you take the money out. And uh, you don't have to put in as much as 20%. You might want to put in 5%. Okay? Well, you can do that. You can structure a plan so you put in a small amount of money so you're implementing your IRA and putting in an additional amount. Uh, okay, very quickly, uh, first of all, as some of you may have read in the notes that I gave to you, Everyone can have a copy of these of the notes of this lecture. You don't have to take notes. Uh, you can get a copy of everything. This, this, everything you're seeing on the screen, w you will be able to have. So you don't have to remember this stuff or, or write it down. Just relax and, and absorb a little bit. Don't, don't worry. Uh, the general rules are 20% of your income for a KEO if you're... Uh, unincorporated or 25% if you're incorporated. If you're making a lot more money, you might want to put in more than $30,000. Well, you can. You can put in, if you set up a specific type of plan called a defined benefit plan, again, more jargon, um, you're going to be able to put in, believe it or not, up, up to 100% of your income. And you know there are some people who really need to put in and want to put in um, you know, uh, 40 or $50,000 a year into, into retirement plans. You really can do it. Um, finally, again, if you are a treasurer of a company or, or a business owner, there are other pension plans, 401k plans, where you're offering a real, a real very, very fine benefit to employees. And if you have employees and you really want to keep them, you can open a 401k, which will allow employees to put money into their retirement plan without ever paying taxes on it. It's not tax deferred. It's a literal payroll deduction, and it's a real wonderful thing for employee relations and for the good of the company. Um, in addition, uh, lump sum withdrawals is another phrase of jargon called 10-year forward averaging. 10-year uh, <laughs> forward averaging, I, it always scared me as a term. I, I couldn't figure out what it meant. I was afraid to learn. But it simply means that if you've got a fair amount of money in a retirement plan, what you can do if you're going to take all of it out when you retire, let's say you've got $50,000 in a retirement plan. If you want to take all of it out at once, you have to pay taxes on it. But 10-year forward averaging will allow you to pay taxes on it spread out over 10 years. So 
it gives a, a little bit of a break to that final time where you're going to have to get socked for the taxes. Okay, very, very uh, briefly on insurance. Um, basically, insurance policies uh, that were done, especially before 1980, are terrifically out of date. Um, you know, why should I have insurance? Okay, if you have a family or, you're, uh, or a, a spouse, uh, you might want to either be creating an estate or you might want to just preserve an estate. And it, you, it's really, it's important to think about protecting yourself and, and protecting the, the people that are close to you. Um, so, first of all, if you have a policy now, you really should review it um, with someone who's a specialist, someone that knows about insurance. First of all, uh, there's a very good chance that an insurance specialist can uh, make your premiums less, uh, can increase your cash value, and it can increase uh, death benefits. I, I hate that term, but I can't think of another euphemistic way to say it. Uh, so, in addition, one of the reasons that uh, the insurance industry has changed is that in the past, you would get your money would grow at a certain rate, um, maybe five percent. 6%. And now you can, you can allow your money to grow at a much more rapid rate. And you've just got to make sure that uh, you're, you've got the new policies as opposed to the old policies. And one other point to, to think about is this. It's, it's really ideal if you can work with someone who can shop for you. Um, not as much working with someone at a particular insurance carrier, a particular insurance company. Um, but it's, it's much better if you can find someone, a specialist, who can talk to you about estate planning and insurance and then look around and, and take your policy and compare it to the street right now and to what else is available. Because most of the time, if you can find someone like that who's, who can shop for you, you can do better than what you've got, even if, it's, if, even if you took it out in the last two years or so. Um, if, again, if you're a business owner, uh, it's important to think about buy-sell agreements if you have a, a partnership uh, you might have a, a, a wife or, or, or an uncle, someone close to you, and your partner might also have a relative like that. Um, it's a real tragedy if you're in a partnership and one of you dies and the other fella doesn't, or the other gal, doesn't have the money to buy, to buy the whole business. Um, what happens? Well, the fellow that passed away or the woman that passed away, his or her spouse um, doesn't really want to run the business much of the time and doesn't have the money to, to buy it. And the person, the surviving partner, uh, has a similar uh, reciprocal problem. That is, that, or that is that he doesn't have the money to, to buy the business, and he needs to own it himself to really run it. Um, so what you, what you can do and what often, what really must be done for many businesses is setting up a buy-sell agreement so that the partner that passes away, the, the spouse of that partner who, who, who passes away, can sell and has the capital, the money to sell their side of the business to the surviving partner. And um, the surviving partner has the money to buy the business. So it's very important uh, to consider. And again, uh, other, th other accoutrements with uh, insurance and uh, business, key man insurance, if you have someone who's a very valuable asset to the business, uh, some type, you might need some type of an, an insurance to help you if he, pa he or she passes away. And finally, deferred compensation uh, basically is designed to help your business so that to discourage a very valuable person 
from going to the other camp or leaving. It's, a, it's giving, giving them a, a benefit. Wills, um, okay, the, uh, this is not something for an accountant to drop or for a, a stockbroker to drop. Um, it's for a lawyer. You, you need to uh, review your wills and make sure that your, your wills have been reviewed over the last few years. I, I see a wonderful spelling error there, and catted. Due to new estate tax laws and catted in the last five, few years, all wills should be reviewed. Um, I think we can guess what that word is. Uh, so make sure that your wills are reviewed because of the new laws that have come out in terms of spouses and uh, it's very important to have a, a simple adjustment in your will and to review it. I mean, a lot of people simply don't have wills at all or they're very, very out of date. And in addition to the tragedy of passing away for someone who is surviving, it's a real terrible thing to have to deal with that tragedy and also deal with, with the real tragedy of finances. So it's important to really do some estate planning and to think about your wills and to review them and, and, uh, when your circumstances change. Um, how do, you, how do you plan in terms of estate planning and, and even for finances in general? Um, some of the investment firms have a service where you can, you, you, you meet with a counselor, you answer intense questions, a lot of questions, uh, you, you go through a lot of dialogue with a counselor and estate planner and a financial consultant, and that person, that consultant, will go to their firm and generate a very uh, comprehensive and individualized plan for you according to what your needs are. It's really a terrific service because it, it gives you a real fantastic blueprint for yourself um, for the, f the financial needs that you have. And you can use it to work with your financial consultant or your investment advisor, whatever, further and to, to work with your accountant and for you just to have so you know where, where you're going and, and where you want to go. Financial planning is really about um, where you want to be a few years from now, and uh, that's what that's what what the service can do. For, I I don't know too much about what a lot of other firms do, but Merrill Lynch has a service like that called Pathfinder, and you pay a fixed fee for it, and you really get a, a wonderful uh, plethora of information for yourself. Okay, taxes. I'm not going to go through too much about taxes. You need to discuss them with your accountant. He can give you a feel for what your bracket is. But I just wanted to, to flash them on the screen to give you some rough idea for what, what, taxes, what tax brackets there are. Um, I've calculated this for someone who's paying New York City taxes. So you're paying New York City, New York State, and federal taxes. So for any of you that don't know, it is quite possible to be in the 59% bracket as a New York City uh, resident. And uh, so uh, there you have it if you're... Uh, fairly self-explanatory. If you're single, you're going to be paying uh, more in taxes. And if you're single and you're, and you're earning more than $90,000 a year, um, that's where you're going to very easily fall into the maximum tax bracket. Um, okay. Continue. Okay, this is really what I wanted to work towards. And I want to spindle through this and then really get to questions and answers. Um, this is... Uh, just a few scenarios, about uh, eight or nine scenarios of different people. Um, the first one, I, I've made up a few names for it. The first one is, is earning, a, has an income of fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year, and he or she, um, uh, I'm sure many of us are familiar with he or she, uh, and the name I've dubbed is the intellectual pauper. Uh, the intellectual pauper uh, has uh, 
a total net worth of between one and five thousand dollars, a liquid worth of between one and five thousand dollars sitting perhaps in money markets, an illiquid worth of, of three hundred dollars. Uh, intellectual Popper has a uh, uh, an original uh, copy of Edward Lear's The Book of Nonsense with a uh, signed copy of uh, The Dong with the Illuminist Nose. Uh, in the twenty to twenty-five percent tax bracket, maybe thirty years old, maybe younger or, or older, no dependents. And the basic uh, goals of this person is to pay the rent and to eat three meals a day. Okay. What can we do for this person? <laughs> okay. Um, right, eat, eat two meals a day. Okay. Um, all right. Well, there, isn't, there are some things that, you should be, that this person can and should be aware of. Uh, and there are some things that this person can and should dream about. Um, and there are some things to invest in. But there isn't um, a lot of very intense technical strategy and responsibility for this person right now. Um, yes, he or she can take money and, and speculate in the stock market, uh, uh, playing penny stocks or stock options, waiting to, to make $10,000 on, on $100. Uh, but that's a very, very tough game to play. Uh, and you really win as much or you, you, you lose as much, as much or more as you win when you're extremely speculative. And the problem is that when you don't have that much capital to do anything with it uh, and to make some type of a gain, the, least, the less capital you have, the more aggressive or speculative you have to be. Uh, first of all, this person should be trying to put in some money into an IRA. I haven't written that up there. You can put in up to $2,000. You can put in less. You can put in $200 or $100 or whatever. It's really important. And the reason it's important is not just because um, your money is going to start growing, but because the habit of saving for yourself, especially if you don't have a lot of money, is really, really crucial. And this thing about retirement plans, it really, really works. And in a few years, this person might, might have a higher salary, might be able to put in $2,000 a year. And again, that money is really going to build. So even if it, if it seems like a silly idea, open an IRA and do something with it. Um, the other thing that I want to mention for this person is you can certainly begin to learn about investments. And one way, for example, in, in the stock market is what's called dollar cost averaging. Uh, it's when you're putting in a certain amount, a specific and constant amount of money, uh, maybe every six months, into a stock or a few different stocks to begin to build uh, the amount of shares that you own. Basically, the odds are that if you put in that consistent amount of money, your cost per share is going to decline, and it will, it will work to your advantage. So dollar cost averaging is something that you can do as a very small investor. And the, the real advantage you'll have is you're going to begin to learn about the markets. If you, if you talk to uh, a financial consultant or a stockbroker, and you can begin to work with them, even if it's not a lot of money, it's really nice from an educational standpoint. Because if you have that rapport with somebody, not only are you going to learn from experience, but you're going to have a teacher who you really can learn from. And maybe a few years later, you're really going to need that education. And it will have been a nice thing uh, to have begun to start that type of rapport. And you won't, it's, it's amazing the types of things you begin to pick up just through osmosis. Um, OK, person uh, or people number two have a combined income of thirty dollars to $40,000 a year, um, a net worth of uh, $44,000. $5,000, again, in money markets or, or in relatively liquid assets, um, a $65,000 apartment with a mortgage, and $4,000 in IRAs. Okay, um, you're in 
you're in a, a ta you have some taxes, but it's not terrifically high. Uh, your real concern is 35-year-old couple is you're paying a mortgage, and you have a, a three-year-old child, and you really you care about education. You want to save for that. So paying the mortgage, okay, you need to begin to put to put uh, incremental money away to, to pay for that. In terms of education, I think many of us have heard of a UGMA account. It's a account where at this time money grows, but it doesn't grow at your tax bracket. It grows at the kid's tax bracket, which oftentimes is zero. Uh, so there's an investment that plenty of you have heard about called zero coupon bonds. Again, more jargon, but all you're doing is you're able to lock in a rate of return and you're going to know exactly, it's calculated exactly how much you're going to have to the, to the dollar on maturity. So this, this couple has a three-year-old kid. In 15 years, um, the child is going to enter their, their first year in, in college, hopefully. Uh, and so what they can do, what the couple can do is buy a bond that matures in 15 years. And maybe f a few years later, put in a few thousand more dollars um, so that over time, they're, they're targeting that first tuition date uh, for money to mature. And over time, again, what they can do is target for the year number two and year number three and year number four. Uh, okay, to group number, number three, um, a married couple that's slightly higher income, 50, 50 to $75,000 a year with a, a, a larger apartment, um, and $10,000 in, in Keos and IRAs. I get, here's where you're in a, the, the tax bracket where you've got to consider taxes, 35 to 45%. Um, you have a child and you're paying a mortgage. Okay, well, the child is going to go to college in 12 years, so you might buy a zero-coupon bond, maybe put in $1,000 or $5,000, whatever can, could be afforded in this case, uh, targeted to, to mature when the child begins. Uh, their first year, and uh, you might want to think about uh, other types of things to to help you with taxes. You've got fifty thousand dollars in, uh, in in assets that are liquid. Uh, it it's about time at this forty to forty forty five percent bracket to think about tax free income. So this is the time to be thinking about tax free bonds, um, municipals. Again, that that taxable equivalent yield you can lock in over nine percent. And even in this situation where you're in a maybe a 40% bracket, you're, you can lock in the equivalent of 17% uh, on your money right now uh, if you're going out to a, a long-term maturity. So that's something to consider. Um, in addition, uh, I'll talk a little bit later about uh, what to do with investments in your IRAs and in your KEOs. Um, just to mention it now, uh, the obvious point is, since everything is tax-deferred, you want to make investments that are taxable in your, uh, your KEOs. So you want to think about not tax-free bonds at all, but corporate bonds that are high-yielding, taxable, uh, stock, um, uh, income-producing investments, perhaps an REIT, which is a, a, uh, a real estate trust investment that moves, fluctuates like a stock does. Uh, so again, thinking about, about taxable things. One really terrific, unique investment is a zero coupon that uh, is a bond that matures uh, about in about 12 years, but it has a, uh, it's convertible. So what that means is that you can put money into an, an IRA and get the possible upside of the stock market 
but because you're buying a bond with a special feature, you've got safety. You've got the upside of the stock market because the bond could increase in value due to, due to the stock that it's underlying. Yet after three years, you can get all your money back guaranteed with no loss. So it's a new wrinkle. It's a new type of investment. It's really wonderful for um, tax-deferred accounts, pensions, and IRAs. Uh, the nickname for that, is, uh, by the way, is a lion. Um, okay. Uh, married couple earning $100,000 to $200,000 a year with uh, a $200,000 uh, house with a $100,000 mortgage, $15,000 in, uh, in retirement plans. Uh, you've got two children here. So clearly, again, the concerns are for education. I mean, you know, as, as, as everybody knows now, the cost of education are skyrocketing. $15,000 a year uh, is not unusual for college education. So I bring it up a lot, but it's because anyone that has kids knows that it's a, <laughs> it's a scary uh, 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 thing to consider. So uh, for two children, again, you simply look at the, the years when they're going to turn 18, and you target maturities for bonds that are going to mature on those years and maybe begin to add to those to that investment over time. Um, at this point, um, if you have, this couple has $100,000 in, uh, um, in liquid worth and uh, money from real estate. So what they might be considering is uh, having some funds, uh, again, in, in giving you tax-free yields uh, with their liquid assets, maybe in bonds or bond funds, um, and some money in uh, just holding in, in money markets for, for safety and, and to live off of, and perhaps some money for, for growth for the future, uh, perhaps some, uh, a few, e either a, a mutual fund of stocks or a few issues of, of stocks, maybe $20,000 in, in stocks to, to grow over time. Again, if you're thinking about, if you, if you can think for the long term in the stock market and be conservative, you're going to see high yields over time. Each year, you're really going to annualize very well. Um, at this point, uh, what, you, what these people could begin to consider also is this, uh, this idea of, of getting uh, uh, a second mortgage loan um, if they own a house or an apartment that could be added on to. You might want to get a second mortgage loan, add on to your house, and perhaps not only are you increasing the value, but you might be able to have someone rent that extra addition to the house that you, that you have, something like that. Uh, rental, rental income is, it would be a nice addition. The next uh, couple at earning a combined income of two hundred fifty dollars to $500,000 a year, um, they have uh, $200,000 in, in liquid assets, and what they really want to do is, is reduce their taxes, really paying a, an awful lot of money to, to the government, and preserve their capital. Um, so at this point, what they might want to consider is thinking uh, more about, uh, about real estate and, and sheltering and producing more deductions for themselves. Uh, for themselves. And in the 60% in the bracket, you're, you're paying so much away in taxes, it's, it's incredible. So you really need to reduce your taxes either by thinking about a tax shelter, real estate investment that will produce deductions, or, um, or more real estate uh, itself. And in this case, you've got $200,000 in liquid worth what they can do is, is, is mortgage more real estate, achieve more deductions by taking some money out of their liquid net worth and buying a shelter or buying some more real estate in addition to what they already have. Um, 
this is also the stage. This is a level where they've got an $80,000 pension plan or $80,000 in their pension. You might want to consider changing into this new type of plan I've mentioned where you can put in more than $30,000 a year. Okay, some of you think this, this doesn't make any sense. I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine earning that much in a year or whatever. But some people are really earning plenty of money and you need to shelter some of it because uh, the more you earn that you can't shelter or defer, the more taxes you're paying. So at this stage, if you want to be able to put in more than $30,000 a year, you really can. You set up a different type of a pension plan and uh, uh, this plan could allow you to, to put in forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year. So, this is the uh, this is the, the type of income where you begin to think about that. Um, the uh, the next stage here, you're uh, uh, earning over a million million dollars a year, and uh, you're in the maximum tax bracket. You're you're single, uh, and you want to again. You you're paying an awful lot of money in taxes. What do you do? Well, first of all, one thing I haven't mentioned is this. Why is this lecture called Investment Strategy for Literati? And, and why, are, why are writers or agents, what is there unique to say about that? Well, first of all, a few things. Number one, plenty of us are not interested in investments. It's, a, it, 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 it's, it's uh, uh, something that the, the, the literary, the publishing world looks on with disdain, if not boredom, um, number one. Number two, uh, many of us don't know anything about this area. Uh, and finally, number three, income brackets fluctuate terrifically if you're a writer or an agent. Uh, and one of the things that you've got to do, whether you're earning a million dollars a year or, or thirty to forty thousand dollars a year, is try to give yourself more stable income. Um, and there, there are real ways to do that. You want to do everything you can to either have a consistently high bracket or a consistently low bracket, but not have a high bracket one year and a low bracket another. And you've got to try to accelerate or deaccelerate your your income and your your royalties and um, uh, any any types of income measures as as much as you can to create stable uh, stable income. So this this fellow who's earning a million dollars or more a year, he might earn a uh, million dollars one year, but he writes books every every three or four years. And so in those interim times, um, he might not have an income that's quite that quite that large. So what he needs to do is to make sure that his income is, is fairly stable. Well, have money in real estate and in real estate shelters that begin to reduce his taxes, create those deductions. Uh, and at the same time, he's got to be in some tax-free bonds so that he's got income in those years when he's not, uh, you know, he's not getting those, those, those big royalty checks. Um, so those are those are a few things that 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 he can he can do. Okay, then the na last three are people in earning lesser amounts of money um, with different types of financial needs. So these are much less prototypical. The last three, um, someone that has an income of fifteen to thirty thousand dollars a year, has a liquid worth of two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and is forty and is single. And the problem here is that. They have some some capital, but they're really not getting enough income according to what they what they've got. So, uh, in this case, it uh, it makes sense to uh, to take that two hundred fifty thousand dollars. It might be sitting in money markets or in a lot of stock that's not yielding enough uh, money, and put that money into tax free uh, 
tax-free bonds into, into stocks that are yielding a high amount, high-yield dividend stocks to give them some income. Um, and again, he, uh, he or she has an IRA. So that will, that will begin to, to help them, especially with the tax-free bonds. They won't increase the tax bracket. Okay, the next person is in an odd situation, thirty dollars to $60,000 a year income um, with a very large amount of real estate. And I, I know people like this. I know writers like this who have, they're really much too illiquid. Um, $700,000 in real estate, $180,000 in art collections, $20,000 in, 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 in kios. Um, and uh, in, in this case, what they should do is, first of all, sell some of that real estate uh, because they really can get, give themselves a much higher income than thirty to $60,000 a year if they sell a few hundred thousand dollars of real estate and put that money into tax-free bonds. And that's what really has to happen. If you're, if you're too illiquid and, and you're really uh, you're, 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 you're top-heavy here, and uh, in addition, what you, what you still can do is um, make sure that you're getting some uh, uh, sufficient deductions from the real estate that you own and um, uh, continue to uh, pil- put money into the IRA and the, and the KEO uh, so that you can you can build some money for retirement. Uh, okay, finally, the, the last person. Uh, I'm sure plenty of us wouldn't mind being in this position. <laughs> You're making a million dollars a year in income. Your net worth is, is, is one and a half million dollars, $300,000 in, in liquid worth. Um, you have a million dollars in apartments and in, in houses. But your concern here is that you're divorced. You want to have an estate for your family, for the future. You want to protect some people that are a lot younger and a lot needier than, than yourself. And you're concerned with the education of, of a few children. Uh, and so you really want to build and preserve your estate. Even though you, know, you, you seem to have a lot of money, you're concerned about making sure it gets to the right people if, God forbid, you pass away. And also if... Uh, 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 if um, just if you're if you're managing the money itself, uh, that you have enough that you can uh, that your capital is really building over year, and there's a real opportunity here to do that. Not only through remortgaging some of your real estate, buying more real estate, um, but at the same time um, doing some proper estate planning and thinking about uh, what to how to plan for the future with insurance, uh, uh, with retirement plans, and with with willing those to. Uh, uh, to survivors, so those are those are a few things. I I'm just about ready to to, to tie up. I want to really open the floor to some questions and answers because that's really what I wanted to get to. Uh, questions and answers. I have a, a quotation as I mentioned, and I just want to leave us with one one more observation. I know I've been talking about finances and 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 money uh, and. Some people here in these examples who are very wealthy, but I really want to give it some perspective. And as, as John Ruskin said, there is no wealth but life. So I want to thank you all tonight and open the floor to some questions if we have some. Okay, great. Yeah. No. Uh, given the fact that you can only put in $2,000 into an IRA, is there an advantage relative to a Keo? 
uh, there's no advantage. A Keo and an IRA are basically the same in terms of how they're set up, what they do. The only difference is that in a Keo, you can put in more than $2,000 a year. And some people simply need and want to put in more than $2,000 a year into retirement plans. Something for your accountant. You bet. Most people uh, tend to have both. If they have a Keo, they also have an IRA. and they, they, What they do is this. If you have an IRA and you want to open a Keo, you adjust the amount that you want to put into your Keo such that you've already calculated for your IRA. But yes, you can, you can stop the IRA. You can stop contributing and just have a Keo if you want. Um, n- no, I think that there are some investments where it might be uh, easier to, to pool, your, pool your assets. Um, but uh, if there's, there may be a specific investment where you need to have a large amount of capital to put into it, and it might make it easier if you have it in one investment. But it depends on what type of investments you're, you're thinking about. And uh, for convenience, it might be easier to have it in one plan. Right. The question is, would I, sorry for not repeating the other questions, would I consider it risky to be considering uh, real estate partnerships uh, with the, uh, the tax plan coming up? Um, do you also mean real estate or just the partnerships? Partnerships. Um, the tax plan, it's, it's kind of like uh, trying to follow the tax plan. It's trying, like trying to follow the growth of bamboo in your backyard. Bamboo grows apparently at a terrifically rapid rate every few days. It's, 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 it's changed. And that's a problem with the tax plan. It's extremely organic. And it is always changing. So, um, yes, it's a cause for concern, but uh, no, it's not a reason not to think about tax shelters. The reason is that people that issue tax shelters now um, have some idea of what the the potential uh, tax proposal will be and have worked around that. So, yes, it's something to be concerned about, um, and it's something to look into very carefully in relationship to a shelter, but it shouldn't stop you from considering the idea. Something to go over at the particular, you should always go over the particular deal at, at hand with your, your counselor. If you sell a property? It's an art property? Oh, okay. Um, the question is, if you have a piece of art, um, correct me if this is, if this is wrong, um, and it's worth a, a fairly large amount of money, what will happen to uh, the, how will it be taxed on sale? Uh, and um, if it will be taxed on sale, uh, at what amount? And... Um, Art is a little bit more complicated. It's not something that the sale of art and the taxes of art are not something that I'm intimately familiar with. Um, 
our tax questions, it's a good question for your accountant. And um, it's something, in fact, um, Bruce Savitt has a red tie on this evening and a dark blue suit sitting in the back right there uh, with his, his smile. And it's something to ask, possibly ask an accountant and perhaps even ask Bruce if you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a tax-deferred annuity is something that, that's one area that I don't know inside and out. It's basically a situation where uh, you are uh, locking in a fairly high yield for yourself uh, and you have a very high degree of safety uh, of, uh, of principle. Um, as, I, as I know, tax-deferred annuities are not terrifically liquid. One of your problems is that you're not going to be able to sell them necessarily that easily, depending on the, the type of annuity you get, um, but they're fairly high yielding. Uh, as for more than that, something that, that I can get back to you on. Yeah. Um, well, a tax a tax deferred annuity isn't something that uh, has um, radically different tax uh, uh, tax benefits. I.e., if your if your if your tax situation is is very low in one year and very high in another, a tax deferred annuity only really meets one of those needs. So it isn't necessarily the answer. Um, what uh, what you want to try to do is see if you can. It sounds kind of funny, but that you might want to see if you can get your royalty payments evened out over two years, if, if, if possible, um, to give yourself a more consistent bracket. Yeah. Yes. No. Um, the person third from the bottom, the question is, uh, a person who is in a tax bracket of 35 to 40%, uh, do they or do they not need tax-free income? The answer is yes, they do. Uh, if you're if you're basically in a in a tax bracket of 20 to 25 percent uh, or 30 percent or lower, tax-free income isn't as much as a concern. But if you're over 30 percent, and in this case you are, uh, in fact you're over you're 35 or higher, then you really need to be thinking about tax-free income because you're giving away a lot of money uh, to to the government. Any other questions? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I didn't um, I didn't go over zero coupons very carefully. Um, a zero coupon. The, the question was, uh, to some extent, what is a zero coupon bond, and how can you have it work for you in a pension or an IRA? Uh, okay, a zero coupon is a bond, the most common type of which is a zero coupon treasury. Uh, so you, you're buying an investment that's backed by the government. You're buying it at a discounted price, and it will mature at maturity. It will mature at $1,000 a unit. So you might buy it at $400 a bond, and it's going to mature at $1,000 a bond. So if you're buying six units... You're buying six bonds. You're going to have, whenever it matures, $6,000. Um, 
you have, it has a yield, so when you buy it, uh, you'll be locking in that yield, and it's a taxable yield. So um, the reason it's a, a very fairly popular in retirement accounts and IRAs is that it's, it's, fairly, it's, it's very safe, uh, and um, uh, it's very certain in terms of when it matures and how much it gives to you. See, some people are very conservative in their IRAs. Other people want to be more aggressive. If you're very conservative, you, you consider zero-coupon treasuries. Mm-hmm. Okay. What? Ha- yeah. Yeah. No. With an IRA, I think some people. It's not always clear what IRAs are and how they're used. In an IRA, you put money in. It's an account. It's not an investment. You can invest in anything in an IRA. You can invest in stocks, bonds, uh, zero coupon bonds, mutual funds, um, real estate, uh, uh, zero coupon corporate bonds, uh, convertibles, anything you want. So there's a whole plethora of investments within, within IRAs. So when you put your money in, and that's something that I haven't touched on a lot at this point, what do you invest in? Well, that's a whole other uh, concern. The point is you can invest in anything, uh, and you want to consider uh, investments. Every, almost every type of investment except a tax-free bond uh, is, is uh, a possibility for a retirement plan, for an IRA or a Keo. Okay. Um, banks tend to market retirement plans and IRAs and Keos as if they're investments, and they're not. Um, an IRA is not a CD, and most banks seem to imply that you, when you open an IRA, you automatically invest in a, in a CD. So the question is a good question. If you open an IRA, is it, is it automatically put into a, an investment, and if so, uh, is it a CD? The answer is that if you open an IRA with a bank, it oftentimes is ordinarily put into a CD automatically. If you open an IRA with another institution, for example, a brokerage firm, usually if, there, if you don't do anything, it's automatically put into a money market, which isn't wonderful, but it gives you some type of a yield. Um, the point is that in a bank, you don't have a lot of different alternatives. You can look into uh, CDs at a bank, and you can look into money markets, and you can look into uh, other investments like stocks. You don't have a lot of counsel there. Um, though if you're very experienced uh, in investments and in the market, um, it's, it's a possibility. At a brokerage firm, an IRA is different. You're able to make a lot of different choices. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a good question. And again, this is one that uh, I'm aware of, though uh, an accountant, someone like uh, uh, an accountant should be able to tell you what exactly those taxes are. But yes, if you're buying a taxable, any taxable bond, including a taxable zero coupon, um, you are responsible for, for taxes each year on it, even though you're not getting income on it. It's something to be aware of and something to consider. Um, there is one other type of zero-coupon. It sounds a little bit complicated, but it's called a zero-coupon municipal bond. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. A zero-coupon muni or municipal is a zero-coupon that is tax-free. A zero-coupon treasury is a zero-coupon is a, is a that is taxable. If you buy a zero-coupon municipal, you are getting uh, an amount of money that is tax-free. And I I don't, I'm not positive, but I'm fairly sure that if you buy the zero-coupon tax-free 
the zero coupon muni, uh, I don't think you're going to be paying taxes every year. If you buy the zero coupon treasury, you may have that, that problem. Yeah, um, takeovers are fairly complicated. They're based on a lot of uh, information that, that's very tough to discern. But uh, what generally tends to happen, it's not always the case, the company that is taking over another company, the price of the stock temporarily tends to decline. The company that is being taken over, the price of the stock often tends to increase. And the reason is simply that the, the, the company that's taking over, the company A who's taking over company B is... Uh, offering a particular price that's above the present stock value or stock price of company B. And uh, for that reason, it's very attractive uh, to be in the company that's being taken over. And sometimes the reason that the price of the company that is, uh, that is taking over the other company or making the, uh, the offer to take over the company, one of the reasons that that price declines often is, A, that they might have to take on a lot of debt to buy the other company, and, B, sometimes the investors... Um, in the first company, the company that's making the, the offer to take over the other, might get out of it, sell it, and get into the new company um, that's about to be taken over because they're familiar with, with, with the company they're already in and they're, they're willing to take the risk. So those are some of the dynamics. Um, I, I gave you the answer without stating the question for the tape recorder. The question was what are some of the dynamics of, of takeovers in relationship to stocks being taken over and, and the, the takeover rater?